0: So from the outside, you would think like things were fucking awesome, right? Had the missus, had the job, had the income, had the lifestyle we're living in, in America like Instagram was a highlight reel. Behind the scenes, I was still abusing drugs like big time, you know, we were thinking we were like full Wolf for Wall Street style, thinking we were all that. I had about 30 grand worth of debt piling up behind the scenes because as much as we thought we were all that, we were spending money faster than we could make it, I was at least. So my girlfriend at the time didn't have any clue about how much I was drinking, drugs I was doing, or the amount of debt I had piling up. But from the outside, everything looked hunky-dory, right? Mm. We still had enough to have Uber Eats, have a good time, and just pretty much do whatever we wanted, go on holidays. And how important was that image to you?
1: I loved it. Mm. There you go, loved it. That's Kane Dover. I met Kane a few months back at one of the breathwork, meditation, and ice bath sessions he regularly runs as a way of helping people connect. Kane struck me as a man who'd been through something significant, come to a life changing realization, and taken the necessary action to evolve. And I wasn't wrong. Until a few years ago, he was under the shadow of a strained relationship with his father, a relationship that was void of emotional connection and responsible for much of his pain and confusion
0: a boot to the arse or like a good old belt you know as a kid getting disciplined sort of thing so It felt like with him it went from zero to a hundred and the only time I saw his emotion was was anger. He's lived the life of a money hungry corporate high flyer burning the candle at both ends until it all came crashing down. I've gone from this kid from an ostrich farm to eventually two years down the track being the sales manager of a publicly traded company that's worth nearly a billion dollars that me and my buddy and his partner at the time had built from three people in a ranch and an Airbnb to having nearly 170 staff through the US.
1: He's been on a plant Medicine induced odyssey of self discovery deep in the Amazon jungle, having visions that defy all rational explanation.
0: I'm going to sit in this ayahuasca ceremony, I'm going to get told what I need to do, and then I'm just going to go do it. But it ripped you to shreds. (laughs) Ayahuasca gives you what you need, not what you want. And he's rebuilt his value
1: system and replaced the rigid definition of what he was taught it meant to be a success,
0: emerging as
1: something else entirely.
0: Being of service to others, you must first be fit for service. And I think I've done the work to become fit for service and now I'm just excited to to be able to provide a safe space for men to be able to connect and grow and and heal and push boundaries.
1: Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Can you grew up on a ostrich farm. Tell us a
0: bit about that. I did. It was uh one of dad's entrepreneurial escapades. We were on 14 acres up in Onkapringa hills. I don't know if you know the Onkapringa in hills the too south. well, so yeah. yeah, that's right. So mornings were often You know heading down to the paddocks feeding the ostriches if there were eggs he would like distract the males on one side and i'd like sprint into the pen dangerous work yeah yeah (laughs) and so they were like massive these massive eggs but because they're big birds yeah they grow up to like 2.7 2.8 meters tall so it was a big how many ostriches are we talking on the farm so we had i want to say about 50 60. whoa far out and then we had like all the incubators so we'd like have the chicks and like raise them up and stuff like that so right yeah are you rounding up ostriches is that a no nah, like they were them? they were all in pens they can they can be like super deadly so yeah we wanted to make sure they were all contained so yeah they had all their sections like the younger ones the more mature ones so yeah that was that was interesting that lasted a few years and i don't think dad got out of it what he wanted um yeah interesting character did you have any run-ins man, with the but,
1: um Ostriches.
0: only only in the mornings when we had to uh, run into the pen and collect the eggs before they realized so like I said yeah he'd distract him <laughs> on one side with the food I'd sprint in and yeah it was a bit like so pretty agile. Up the eggs and... yeah
1: yeah that would have been good for your sport I guess yeah yeah
0: <laughs> yeah short sprints yeah actually that yeah that makes sense I'm a good sprinter now yeah, not yeah, really yeah, yeah, you had so to be maybe that's all had to be short bursts uh, yeah exactly
1: and um, what was your relationship like with your dad as a child?
0: yeah interesting interesting relationship and it's it's kind of come full circle now i'm thirty two years old and it wasn't until I was about thirty odd that I kind of started to realize more around who he was as a person and that started putting pieces together from like a puzzle when I was a bit younger so growing up, he was like mum and dad had about sixteen years age difference, so when they met he had already had a couple of kids and uh, Yeah, met my mum, had had my sister and I. So growing up, he was always like the entertainer, right? He was, you know, an Elvis impersonator. He was like the life of the party, like really good friends with people. But behind closed doors, like I would see growing up, you know, my parents fighting, arguing. All I remember as a kid is... Kind of growing up and hearing them fighting and being the one to kind of come out of my room and ask them to, to kind of keep it down like being and, the mediator
1: sort of thing yeah
0: more so just like begging them to be quiet so they didn't wake up my little sister so yeah. for so long i i felt that the relationship they had wasn't the best and even as a little kid i remember thinking like i'm not going to be like that as a dad and kind of knowing that whatever was going on was going to stop with me i reckon i would have been like eight or nine at the time and now you know, looking back on it as an adult, you realise what you are doing is trying to do some like ancestral healing, right? Yeah. And being that pattern interrupter in the lineage of like the men and father and son and whatever that may be, of being that person that wants to kind of so you were step having that it. that epiphany at that young of an age. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting, and I think my mum became that safe space mm. for me, and vice versa, because I don't feel like they had a very good relationship they didn't connect too closely so i kind of became her safe space as well and so a lot of that loving nurturing nature had come from my mom and it was almost it almost felt like it was me and her against dad in a way yeah. and that's not very healthy when you've got like a parent and you're almost having to choose sides seeing them as the enemy almost yeah, yeah. and it was you know and you know whenever i I talk about my old man, like my relationship with him over the years has gone from a lot of anger, um, moved to a place of numbness, trying to kind of keep him at, at arm's length, and then coming to a point where it was more more neutral and, and a little bit more compassion now, you know, over that span of, mm. of about 10 years. so So, growing up, there were times where I wanted... To feel safe around him there was a time in primary school I would have been year two or three maybe year four I can't remember which year it was but I was bullied like a lot for for that it felt like a I think it was a year and a half and that was like a really challenging time and so in that time like that safe space kind of came in in with my mom crying every night like I was just the kid that got picked on like that was Right. You know, for no apparent reason, but like I was just the kid that got decided to be the one to get picked on, right? Yeah. So like I just remember like balling my eyes out as a kid, my mum always being there, my dad not being really emotionally available or had the capacity to How did he respond? To did he just sort of ignore yeah. it? Yeah, like there was just nothing there. It was just numbness if I think back to that period of my life. Like, I can't remember any significant memories of him or times where he's like, mate, you got this, but I just remember my mum being like my rock at the time, right? So, yeah, just a bit emotionally unavailable. And there have been other times in life kind of growing up where his reaction would always be, you'll be right, she'll be right, mm-hmm. doesn't matter, not getting involved very low emotional capacity yeah. sort of things. What so, about in terms of his
1: affection or acknowledgement towards you?
0: Yeah, lack thereof. Growing up, I felt a big lack of love from him. I definitely felt like I wasn't good enough based on that relationship. The only time he was really fully present with me emotionally was when he was angry. And so there were times Mm. there where I remember getting like, you know, a boot to the arse or like a good old belt, you know, as a kid getting disciplined sort of thing. So it felt like with him it went from zero to a hundred and the only time I saw his emotion was, was anger.
1: How conscious were you of the need to earn his love through your young life?
0: Yeah, big time. I think as a young man, you always look up to other men as those role models, right? And he was born in 47. So when I was, what, 10 in the year 2000, he was, what's that math, in his 60s. So we never kicked the 40 together. His way of doing things would be to build cars and he would notoriously just build cars. So he would yeah. build a car. From the ground up, I'll be I'll give it to him, he was a hard worker. Like I don't think I've seen someone grind as hard as he did. He just never got anywhere. Yeah. So it's like the ostriches, he would build hot rods, he ran like a shoe repair business, he would like do singing and entertaining. So he just he wouldn't stop. But now looking back I know he was like trying to fill a void, right? Yeah. With all that and he time. wasn't
1: doing what you wanted to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, wanting to kick the 40 with your dad and like go do stuff like we would always go out, we'd go for drives and things like that. But it was never that playtime, if that sort Mm. of makes sense. So growing up, I was seeking a lot of that, that mateship and friendship in older cousins in, um, you know, in family members, like older boyfriends and and my own sort of friendship groups, because I didn't really feel like I had that relationship. And as I started getting into my teenage years, uh, kind of jumping ahead in my relationship with my dad. There were times there where the conversations would become more of Friends it would be all to do with dating This is after my parents had split up and he would talk about you know The women he was dating and at the time I thought this is a little bit weird like to talk mm. to your son about this So like he was stuff. detached a bit yeah from the father-son relationship and it mm. was more Like we were chatting as as friends and it was almost like his way of seeking validation from me about him dating. Like it was really quite strange. And at the time I couldn't articulate why it felt strange. But now having a little bit more awareness knowing that it was coming from a place of himself not necessarily feeling good enough and needing that external validation did um, he hug you tell you he loved you every time we'd get off the phone he'd be like love you mate but it would always feel very empty it would it would just be words oh, you, you didn't know, feel it? him no no and i think you know growing up i don't remember any physical affection and i remember him giving it to my sister like physical affection so i think there was a lot of jealousy there toward my my younger sister growing up too like he, I felt like he felt, loved her more than you yeah definitely yeah mm. Mm.
1: So how did you perceive what it meant to be a man as a boy and as a teenager growing up, given that you had this sort of strange relationship with your
0: father? Yeah, it was the time specifically of when I, was, when I got picked on in primary school was a really hard, really hard time as, as a young man. So then definitely wanting that support from my old man, which I didn't really feel like was there, was a bit of a, an emotional void. I found myself very quickly after that time making as many friends as I could in a lot of different groups. And I think looking back on it now, it was because, okay, if I fell out with this group of friends, I'd have my sport friends. Protection, sort of survival instinct thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I spent a lot of time in nature. Obviously we had the farm. I love nothing more than, you know, going exploring, climbing trees, like Mm. catching yabbies. Like I was a very active sort of person. And I would use almost the farm as being like, oh, I'll come to my house, like I've got a farm to like make friends, right? So moving into moving into high school, I was again, I guess a little bit socially, like had friends, like I would, I would be, I'm almost like an introverted extrovert, right? Like if you were to meet me, I'm like out there, like speaking in front of people, doing stuff like this, mm-hmm. but I was very much, In my own head i would always worry about that fear of judgment from other people and i became very good at shrinking and hiding especially coming through primary school and into high school because i would associate being seen with being picked on or judged right so if I wasn't seen and I would could hide away, I wouldn't no be... No one could hurt you. Correct. Like same went for like if I was at home and I did something wrong, like if I wasn't seen or anything like that, then like dad couldn't fucking with mm. me or something like that. So that was actually a big challenge like as a man, like getting into my adult years, needing to get over that fear of being seen, getting over that fear of, of putting yourself out there because you very quickly limit yourself with what you want to share on social media or you know finding your voice and things like that so what kind of man were you aspiring to be though
1: because i'm sure you probably didn't want to be that smaller version of yourself but it sounds like you felt like you had to be because that's how you'd learn to stay safe
0: yeah that was definitely a a coping strategy and uh as a, a young man growing up you know you watch these movies of like the action heroes and and like wanting to be this like super confident yeah. outgoing sex appeal like james bond sort of style yeah. right and i found myself judging a lot of other people that were like the confident people the confident guys that were speaking up and i immediately would like label them as like the douchebags right mm. because that was me projecting onto them everything that i felt insecure about myself right. or either not having or into yeah Exactly and it wasn't until a couple of years ago like going back to when my parents were together and I saw I guess my dad being like aggressive like I never saw like you know there's no record of um, or conversation about my dad ever being abusive with my mom or or uh, anything like that but he would be like quite overbearing a little bit jealous she would be like a little bit aggressive or assertive and i saw all of these traits as a kid like remembering back to that time when my mum was my safe space right and i saw all of these traits that my dad would use toward my mum, and i'd see her upset i'd see her crying i'd see her almost like wanting to move us away because she didn't want us to see her upset so i took all of these things of being aggressive being assertive being all of these traits And I labeled them with the masculine and I put it all in a box and I wrote on there what not to do because I saw all of those traits being used to hurt someone that I love. So they couldn't be good, right? Right. Like that's what I thought as a little kid. So it wasn't until a few years ago when I was a man and I realized that being aggressive, being assertive have have their place in life if used for the right reasons but i'd been fully ignoring those leaning into my feminine for most of my life because after my parents ended up splitting up which was a a huge relief and i felt like you know so much relief for my mom at the time I moved with my mum and my sister, so I was surrounded by then a lot of that feminine energy, seeing them date people, seeing my sister grow up, dating people, mm. again, hearing the bad stories, and then it's just reconfirming everything, right? The masculine is bad, you know? This so how'd happened. that make you see
1: yourself through that time then? Did you feel innately like, I am a man, therefore I must be bad by nature to a degree? Um, or were you very much
0: like, yeah, but I'm not going to be like that, I'm not like that? Yeah, it was interesting because I was doing a lot of those traits to other people in my life, whether they be, you know, friends at the time or girlfriends or girls, where I was going through this, I guess, destructive phase where I was hurting myself, but inadvertently, you know, a lot of the people around me too. How old were you when that was happening? So this was when I was about 15, 16. had gone through a pretty messy, like at the time, breakup. Like w- when you're young, you know, you love. Well, the love life's hectic back then. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, head over heels in love. You know, you don't know to have reservations at that young age and then realise like the girl I was dating was like cheating on me with my best friend. They both oh. like lied to my face. For me, I'm like. Extremely as someone, hurtful. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I, I didn't realise people could lie like that so that was foreign to me until that point i was like oh if you can lie about that then anyone can lie about anything right Mm. so i think at this stage i started getting into the coping mechanisms of drugs alcohol and i was just a pissed off young man really Mm. like i didn't I went to school finished year 12 and all that but I was not didn't like being there I didn't like the school environment I think there was a lot of association there with the the bullying yeah. the fear of lots of people and judgment and all that sort of but thing deep down so, you were carrying a weight around with you yeah, yeah definitely and at the time I had this little voice inside that said like you're supposed to be doing more you're supposed to be being more but mm. it was getting drowned out with the self medicating drugs alcohol out. friends getting into cars and staying out late and yeah, all that sort of stuff. Were you conscious of why you were leaning into those kinds of coping strategies at that time? Not at all. It was at the time, it seemed like the fun, cool thing to do with the the friends that I was with. Right. And I knew, growing up it sounds cliche but i knew i had a good heart and so the friends i was with i was still seeking their approval and seeking their validation as like one of the guys right Mm. but i knew that i didn't vibe with them and connect in all the ways i knew that i had care for others and like i was living with my mom my sister all masculine traits. you're able to
1: separate and say this is just bravado and i
0: can sort of play that role but i know that deep down that's not who i am not, not as well as you just articulated it. It was, I was doing all this stuff. I was going out, I was partying... All of those sorts of things, doing dumb shit as a kid. Mm. And but then I had this little voice deep down going like you're not this person. Yeah, like, why are yeah, you doing this? That's stuff? What I, mean. like, I can
1: relate to that as well. Because yeah. I've had times and a bit later on than that, but in my early twenties where I was doing a lot of those kinds of behaviours and around people that I got along with, but I felt like I'm not actually like you at the end of the day. Yeah. And I'd be I'd be doing the same stuff, things that if I looked at it objectively I'd be like, Oh, it's a pretty risky, like you probably shouldn't be doing that. But I did have that same voice that was like, Yeah, but we all know that. This is just for now and you're a good person and you know you're not really like that but
0: the proof's in the pudding like you sort of you exactly. either doing it or you're not correct no exactly right and my mum would say often she's like surprised i survived my my teenage years because it was just yeah reckless doing silly stuff like obviously behind the wheel of a car and mm. were you trying to hurt like, yourself do you think you know growing up i had contemplated suicide not from the angle of wanting to do it but toying with the idea what would it be like would people care if i wasn't here anymore you know if something happened would people then be like oh kane was a good guy but i never had thought about intentionally hurting myself or or sort of going down that path like i'm sure everyone has those feelings of "Fuck, sometimes it would just be easier if i wasn't here i wouldn't have to deal with with you know whatever's going on right but the never self-destructive seriously... behaviors sort of that's what was happening unconsciously definitely yeah it was definitely self-sabotage self-destructive behaviors and you know probably one of the the best things that could have happened for me was when i was about 17 i, I found myself in a in a relationship that ended up lasting on and off for about five years so during that time it Definitely kept my feet on the ground as opposed to going out and and partying mm. with a lot of these people that ended up going off to, you know, some of them now you hear stories of like having been in and out of prison or doing different things. So, yeah, very thankful that that sort of popped up. At, yeah, and at shows you sort of how so, easily
1: you can go one way or another. And I think that gets those real tipping points, probably those late teenage years through to up to your mid twenties, especially where depending on what you get into and who you're hanging around and what becomes the norm, you can. See that it's a very slippery slope to go one way instead
0: of another yeah yeah 100 percent right and i was i was hanging out with those people i remember when i left school my dad and i were quite quite distant from one another and one of my coping strategies was to physically and emotionally distance myself from from him so after school, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a little bit unsure. Um, that five-year relationship, we'd just broken up after about a year and a half and mm. I didn't know what I wanted to do and I kind of fell in a hole. I had the the benefit of growing up with a, with a family member that was quite spiritually minded. So from a young age, I was hearing stories about meditation and astral traveling and all these different things so i had in the back of my mind that maybe there was more going on in the world than what we can perceive with our mm. eyes and and five senses right so i found myself in a bit of a hole at, at 17 years old after school like researching like energy and like meditation and looking for answers stuff. i was looking for answers 100 percent, and i didn't know what i wanted to do after i left school and i had this vision of standing in a room like this circular room except the room was doors all the way around and everyone from my school knew what they were doing or so it seemed and they're all going off in these directions with the doors representing different career paths and and things like that everyone knew where they were going and i was left standing there almost paralyzed by choice right not knowing what i wanted to do not really having any direction not having any sense of purpose so I ended up finding myself moving overseas, I moved to Germany with a friend of mine and we lived there for a year and that was one of the most special experiences I I had. I was a couple of months out of 18 and what that actually did was give me an opportunity to physically distance myself from those friends Mm. that were getting into drugs and alcohol, were getting into risky behaviours and being over there for just under a year gave me a lot of self-confidence in being able to move to the other side of the world and 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 survive you know and of course the ego inflates after that and then you Mm. you know for anyone that's traveled you know being an australian overseas yeah yeah it's good fun yeah yeah. it is exactly so but that was a a fantastic growing opportunity and i knew when i came back that i didn't want to associate with a lot of those friends anymore so i was very selective about who i continued to hold relationships with so Mm. yeah that was a huge huge change how did you define success in your early 20s like what did you think a successful person was i'll be speaking to the conditioning that my dad gave me and that would be like money house car all of those external factors and i remember one night we went out for dinner after i got back because i was working for a cosmetic company at the time like in the warehouse right and I remember like a family friend was working in in the mines and my dad was always on me about trying to get into the mines Mm. and eventually i did get into it and at the time i was doing youth work so i was looking after young people in care must have been early 20s 21 22 as a residential youth worker um, carer and told him i got a job in the mines he's like oh sweet let's go out for dinner and and celebrate and so me and my sister went out to him I remember we're like we've just sat down and he's and he just said like oh like I'm glad you got this job in the mines because you were turning into a loser. Cause you were caring for kids. I was like That was his attitude. Yeah. Shocked. Like I couldn't even say anything. And my sister's like like what the fuck are you saying? Like you can't say that stuff, Dad. And then he got super defensive, just said, like, Oh, I thought I'd raise your kids better than this. And it's like so much stuff wants to come up of being like Mum raised us. We were with her from when I was like 12, 13 I shows like, how confused his worldview. Yeah 100% so I think a lot of my conditioning up until a few years ago was like your Definition of success is the car you drive how many houses you have how much money you have because for him growing up all of the Ostriches building the hot rods the shop mm. it was all to just get and obtain money mm. but I think for him and his belief system it's like trying to squeeze like a bar of soap, right? The tighter you try and get something, the more elusive it is because it just slips out your hand. So as much as he worked so hard, he never had any. And
1: these weren't projects that were about service or helping anyone else, they're about trying to make a buck.
0: Correct. The quick way too. Mm. None of the delayed gratification or... Yeah,
1: yeah. So how did you go about
0: trying to make this fortune after that? A few ways. Uh, so obviously got into the mines and was doing fly and fly-out work out of Moomba and decent wage I think the best part of it was having two weeks on two weeks off mm. but unfortunately what that also meant was having two weeks home oftentimes with the people that also had two weeks off that loved to party in that time off too yeah. right so so cash to burn not a lot of consequences is correct a potent mix Exactly. And this is not long after I had broken up with the partner I had of about five years. So that was a really challenging time in itself where I got to the point where I had contorted myself. And this is going to go back to like people pleasing and wanting to seek validation from my dad, contorting myself into someone that I thought she wanted me to be, Mm. that I completely lost who I was and I didn't know who I was. And so this is me, early 20s, being a little bit lost and a little bit numb again, like going back to drugs and alcohol. And at the time, my mum, who was my safe space, you know, had known this this woman for, for five years, this girl for five years, watched her grow, obviously, you know, graduating school together. And, you know, you go through these milestones and get to know someone. Mm. And I had, like, cut my partner off at the time. And so the only way to get to me was through my mum. So. My mum being a very empathetic person was hearing all the stories about wanting to get back together and do this and that it must have been like 18 months two years that my that i would like sit at the back table at my mum's house when i was living there and just like express how i was feeling in the relationship of not feeling heard, not feeling seen and i felt like i had let my mum know more than enough to be like i'm hurting in this relationship but now i need it to end so afterwards when my ex was reaching out to my mum, wanting to get back together. And my mum approached me and said like, I I reckon you guys should get back together. Like for her sake, basically is what I heard. Sort of felt betrayed. Big time betrayed. And I was like, you're supposed to be the person that cares the most about me. Like, do you even know me if you think I should go back to that? Mm -hmm. So that caused a huge patch for my mum and I and for her being my safe space, that kind of sent me off the rails a little bit again. So ended up moving out of home, like putting a, a lot of emotional barriers up. So I, th- I had them up towards my dad and then it was up towards everyone. I didn't feel anything. I didn't mm. feel joy. I didn't feel anger. I didn't feel sadness. I was just, yeah, drugs and alcohol. Was just like, no and one, then no one's going to hurt me. Yeah, now. 100%. And then two weeks off at a time, like with the boys from up in the oil field, Like you can get into some mischief. So Mm. that was a a huge coping mechanism there too. And that kind of started that chapter for a few years. What was it like to sit with yourself at that time? Did you ever do it? It was forced. And that was only when I was actually at work. So there were times where we'd be on like rig camps that were maybe an hour and a half, two hours out of Moomba. And you're just in a donga, which is like your single bedroom cabin, like out in the middle of nowhere. So you've kind of got no choice but to sit with yourself. And I really didn't enjoy the person that I was. And I started realizing that I was potentially starting to have some mental health issues myself. Obviously, I was missing family, all the things you miss when you're away for two weeks. And started to realize that isolation just wasn't, wasn't good for me. And what sort of things would come up? Super isolated, feeling super alone, like disconnected, not just out there, but in my life with the people around me. I would want to come home so that I could connect with people and I'd come home and party. Mm-hmm. So for me I just felt very lonely. Just a very empty yeah. existence. What I found myself doing was finding that validation in relationships. So I was jumping from romantic relationship to a romantic relationship, whether that be purely for sex, you know, that emotional intimacy or relationships and that was a pattern and it was going on for a few years. So ended up dating someone and then moving to Melbourne and then that ended after I left the oil and gas field. What was the pattern? Like
1: how long would they go for? About a year. And would they end for the same reason?
0: The reasons were that... I would continue to grow and change but I was very unaware like I would get into something because that's what I wanted at the time but then I changed my mind and moved to something else that was more stimulating so Mm. I found myself getting a little bit bored in relationships or wanting to grow and wanting to change and around that time I, I had a friend that started getting into personal development so I was actually toward the end of my time in the oil and gas field and I started reading and like as a young man, one of the first things you read is the game, but no oh. stress. So um, obviously that inflates the ego a little bit as well once you start being able to actually talk to girls and mm. realized again, I was seeking that validation externally. Did you realize that then? It took me a little while and I, I feel like I knew it, but my ego wasn't letting me lean into that so unfortunately it was another five or so years mm. before I really kind of hit rock bottom and did you allow to yourself
1: work. to just be alone or did you always have to have someone there even though you weren't really ready to yeah I definitely
0: them? always had someone there whether that be like I said a relationship a, a girl someone that I was texting or a friend over I was never alone mm. did you realize that back then as well I think I didn't like being alone and I didn't want to explore that. I just knew I always had to be around people. Maybe that, again, stemmed from childhood, right? Not having any friends or having people around me that I needed to have someone there as that proof of like, no, I'm good enough. Yeah. Right. So ended up uh, moving to Melbourne and while I was there, then got into the business development and sales side of things a little bit more heavily and, uh, ended up getting yeah offered a job over in over in texas so uh my friend that got me into the personal development was spearheading growth of, a, of a, an aussie company over there and said mate come over here and do what you're doing down there doing sales in texas yeah so that was a wild experience and definitely definitely learned a lot it was uh two days after i got there i got introduced to a girl naturally Um, so I ended up dating her for about six months and then we broke up on a Sunday went out on the following Friday and met my next girlfriend right so you could see that. had a bit of a pattern there yeah yeah Yep. But that experience in itself was was phenomenal, you know for anyone that is listening that hasn't mm-hmm. traveled overseas and you know or worked overseas or done anything traveling really does give you a, a phenomenal perspective on, on life and, and the world but America uh, was probably the last chapter where things started to get a little bit more out of hand before things really did hit the fan So how are you viewing yourself when you were in the States? Huge ego massive you know i've gone from this kid from an ostrich farm to eventually two years down the track being the sales manager of a publicly traded company that's worth nearly a billion dollars that me and my buddy and his partner at the time had built from three people in a ranch and an airbnb to having nearly 170 staff through the us Share price went from 11 cents to nearly $5. And like a big part of that was the US expansion. So I was I was the sales manager. I was an Aussie living in Texas and then moved to LA. Had a an attractive Danish PhD girlfriend. So I was all of these awesome things. And the best part, whenever I called my dad, he would tell me how proud of me he was because of what I was doing, where I was, what I was earning.
1: So you had it all on paper. You'd solved the riddle yep. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Solve the riddle.
0: So how did that ego manifest itself? So from the outside, you would you would think like things were fucking awesome, right? Yeah. Like I had, you know, had the misses, had the job, had the income, had the lifestyle. Living in, in America, like Instagram was a highlight reel. Behind the scenes, I was still abusing drugs, like big time. You know, we were thinking we were like full Wolf for Wall Street style. come out for the like sales meeting and like go bumper line beforehand and all that sort of stuff. So... Thinking we we're all that, I had about 30 grand worth of debt piling up behind the scenes because as much as we thought we were all that, we were spending money faster than we could make it, I was at least. Um, so my girlfriend at the time didn't have any clue about how much I was drinking, drugs I was doing, or the amount of debt I had piling up behind the scenes. But from the outside everything looked hunky-dory right mm. we still had enough to have uber eats have a good time and just pretty much do whatever we wanted go on holidays and how just... important was that image to you i loved it mm. there you go loved it and i remember at the time we were having conversations about what do we do after america because she was obviously there from from Denmark, she was there for a short time. You know, do we go to Australia? Do we go to to Denmark? And I just would immediately discount all opportunities other than what I was so focused on because growing up my dad and seeing my mum and dad fighting, for me, I always thought it was about money. Hmm. And so I was like, fuck, if we don't have any money, like we're gonna fight. But my pursuit of money caused me to never have it because I too was chasing like, the fast income, right? So I was moving to America. I was, like, invest, investing, you know, trying to buy and sell stocks and losing money and, like, doing all this sort of stuff without a long-term game plan. So as soon as the conversation came up about moving, I was like, nah, like, you know, we're doing this. I'm doing, I'm doing this. Like, you can stick around if you want sort of thing. Yeah. So it was very much, like, one me, way. Me, me, me yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, big time. And, and then... So what ended up happening was we were building this company, right? So we went from three three or four staff members to 170 in 18 months. And we were like, fuck yeah, we got this. We went from the ranch in Austin, Texas to a little like rented space to an... An office in downtown Austin on Fifth Street, which is, if anyone knows Austin, Texas, it's one street away from Sixth Street, which was like the party street. So naturally, you're there, and then you go and have drinks there, and so it was, it was awesome. Like I loved being, like the sales manager, the guy that everyone wanted to hang around. Like fuck, that felt so good. Yeah. Validation. Yeah. finally. Right, mate. mate, loved it, and it being the boss, people love to suck up to you. Mm. Right. So what ended up happening was we consolidated, we closed down that office, we moved to LA. And so then it was like Austin on steroids because then we were like the sales managers in LA. We had like a, the office we had was like a running track, honestly. Like we had 50, 60 staff in there. We filled it like an eighth of the way and we're like, we're going to grow into it. We're going to be the next. Buzzfeed, like, I don't know, like, we're going to be worth a billion dollars. We're getting paid in shares. We're going to be living the high life. So we thought, you know, we'll spend the money while we have it because we're getting paid in shares, right? The shares are nearly five bucks a share. We got a few thousand in the bank. Sweet, payday sorted. Uh huh. Right. So hypothetical money, not real money. And you were just all gas, no breaks. Indeed. So what ended up happening was. At the time, um, going on behind the scenes, like I said, I was distancing myself a lot from from my old man. So he, he was struggling with cancer pretty bad back in Australia. And like I said, I'd kind of numb myself to, to him at that point. So I was living in America. I was doing this and I would call him and say, like, like, hey, how's it going? How you doing? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. No, don't come home. Don't come home. Keep doing your thing over there. And I was like, yeah, sweet, I will. Like. No worries. But he was um, doing a lot worse. Than, yeah, he better. wasn't doing well. So he had, he had throat and lung cancer, uh, and then he had recovered from that, and then got it again toward the end of my time in 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 the US. And I came home. I remember coming home in about February because it was around my my birthdays and his in in Feb. And I just remember looking at him and he was always like, enjoyed a meal, enjoyed a Coca-Cola. So he was not in great shape. Mm. Um, But always appeared happy growing up, right? And when I saw him this time, he was like skin and bone. He was like a portion of the version that he was, right? And so I remember sitting with him at his sister's place and I feel like this is around the time where he started trying to undo sort of some of the damage that he had done
1: what because he knew his time was yeah living?
0: but again still having not much emotional intelligence so i remember like as as like I, I saw him one day i'm like gave him a hug and i like went to leave and he's like oh kane i'm like yeah and he's like you know i'm sorry if i ever hurt you and i Felt like it was just a consolation, like, I'm sorry if I've heard, Like, he still had such lack of awareness. It wasn't, like he,
1: a, it wasn't an admission of, I know I did correct. this.
0: This is why I did this. Exactly. Yeah. So, for me, it was a very much like, I feel like he was doing it for him, as mm. opposed to genuinely being like, did I fuck up? Why like, do you want to have a chat, chat about it, right? Like, how did I show up in your life? How did you interpret it? It was a, it was a very blanket, like, I'm sorry if mm. like, I ever made you feel bad.
1: Did it strike you that he may have
0: just not known how to do that throughout his life i feel like his whole life he's had like a super super challenging time connecting with others because of his lack of connection with self right, right. maybe based on how he was raised as well to a degree definitely yeah. yeah so 100% agree like that's that's where it came from his upbringing if we jump back to america like this is around that time when i went back to the back to the states and I kind of knew, like, okay, like I feel like I've done, you know, I've said my goodbyes, whatever. Like again, still emotionally distancing myself from my dad. So I was like, oh sweet, I'll just go back over there. Then I'm away from her, Whatever happens, you know, I've got this buffer between us. So what ended up happening was one Saturday morning, we got a call as the sales managers and the executives, and said, oh, the company's just filed for bankruptcy. Like. You guys have to tell all 170 staff, by the way, you're not getting paid and neither are they, but you're the ones that have to fire them and tell them because you're the managers. Shit. So this is the nearly billion dollar company, like publicly traded. And we're like, fucking what? So we're on visas now having to deal with the fact shit we've just lost the the job that we've been building this career we've been building for three years we have to process that but we also have to like lay off all this staff so we literally had to jump on zoom and divide everybody up and just said guys like this is what's happened like we're we're done no one's getting paid for the last two weeks and some people took it really well and said, like, guys, like, fuck, I if, are you guys okay? Like, do you want to get a beer? Other people thought we were in on it because we were the managers. Mm-hmm. So, it was, it was a very challenging time. And for that next two weeks, we spent pretty much every day fucking hammered, right? Trying to figure out what to do. So, one guy ended up going to the office and, like, selling everything on, like, Craigslist. Nice. And, like... Um, my mate was like in a, in a bit of a state as well, cause he was the one spearheading everything. He felt guilty that he brought us over there. And, you know, I was tossing up between going to, you know, uh, Denmark at the time. My missus was just great at graduating a PhD and I had all this to deal with. And she was like, what, you know, now the, the company's not there. You know, you said you, you couldn't come here cause of the company mm. and now it's gone. Like, can't you come? And I'm like, oh, I may have just spent my last... 1,800 bucks on Coachella tickets. So I'm actually broke. I'm actually 35 grand in debt. So she didn't know that. Did you tell her that? No, not at the time. Mm. So I said, I'm sorry, I can't come to your graduation, even though I said I would. And dealing with this and being, you know, pretty much drunk every day, we were figuring out ways that we could try and stay there. Do we build a new company? Do we get another sponsor? Because our visas were done. Like we were, we were done, you know? And I had no clue what to do and I had about 1100 bucks Australian left. I'm like, I'm like, I'm out guys I gotta go home. Like dad's not doing so well. Like I think I just need to do it So we went out that night down in I think it was Laguna Beach And I get a call about 2 in the morning like deep in partying mode saying that my dad had taken a pretty bad turn I was like, all right, I'm coming home tomorrow. We'll be sweet and um The day I was due to fly home, just before I got on the plane, I got a call saying my dad passed away. So that was a bit of a kick in the teeth there. And the company that I had so much of my ego associated with as the sales manager in LA, my dad passed away and then that was like the beginning of the end of that relationship. All of these things that were like inflating my ego were just ripped out from under me and the day I got home I think the funeral was like the next day and I was just like I didn't know what to feel right so when you got that news like how do you describe the way you reacted to it was it just numbness I just I bawled I just bawled my eyes out and I think that had been the first time I properly cried in years and I think it was just like not out of Sadness necessarily, but just all of this built-up shit pressure. Yeah, you know, it was just that release so Yeah, so I came home and like spoke to my girlfriend at the time and said I need just I need some time Like I'm gonna just go smash out some work Let me clear this debt and then I'll like move to Denmark like i got nothing now holding me here, right? So I ended up going and moving to the Northern Territory and, and getting into youth work again of all things, right? Right, like talk about coming full not, circle. Not really a get money quick kind of gig. Dude, where I was was, you know, they needed staff so badly. Like I didn't have a house for the first like two months. I was li- pretty much living on shift, like doing double, So 6am to 2pm and then I'd drive to another house, do 2pm to 10pm, do a sleepover and do it all over again. So like I actually didn't have a residence for a couple months because like there were so many kids in care that needed carers. So I actually ended up managing to smash down that debt quite quickly. Right. And what ended up happening there was like, my girlfriend and I, we broke up. We got back together, broke up, got back together. The distance was a problem. And it got to the point where I just thought, like enough's enough. Like I just, I can't, you know, be in and out. Like I just need, I think I just need some space. And then after we'd broken up, I was like, I actually don't care. Mm. Like, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel any grieving for the relationship. I didn't feel anything. I was like, that's a concern. Like, this is the person I was about to move to the other side of the world for, get married because it was going to make immigration easier. Is that sort of how you felt about your dad as well at the funeral? I didn't feel sad until I saw his friends speaking at the funeral. I had a lot of anger towards him, like a lot of that negative emotion. So at the time it was it felt like an obligation to go to his funeral and speak and need to put on like the sad son face, if that makes sense. Mm. So the day after the funeral I actually drove straight to the non territory. Like I didn't want to stick around, didn't want to see family. Like I'm just like, nah, no, just keen to get out of here. So That numbness was something that continued with anger kind of shining through. So when I had broken up with my partner a couple of months later, officially, and I didn't feel anything, I was like, okay, that's strange. I was like, I think I need to take a good, hard look at myself and take away the job, take away the partner, the ego, the sales manager, all that. Yeah, what were you left with? Someone I didn't like. And i think that hit me the hardest
1: because it was all an illusion well it wasn't i mean Mm. it was all something that you'd crafted but it wasn't really about you know who is kane as an actual person it was just this show that you'd fully bought into
0: yeah and Uh, i was getting other people to buy into it as well and
1: associated everything
0: with that so what happens when Mm -hmm. that all shatters yeah and throughout that process, I'd hurt a lot of people. Like I'd send really like mean things to my mum, you know, going up through my sister. A lot of people that I'd hurt over in the states, friends that I would kind of just do my own thing and being unaware, hurting myself, also hurting others, you know. Telling was people that I'd be a, was there that a them, result then... of those barriers going so
1: high, and you getting so good at numbing yourself out, mixed with? that combination of ego
0: to sort of warp your brain into thinking that you didn't need anyone else. I think it was more about telling people what they wanted to hear from people pleasing, telling them I was going to be there for them because I wanted them to be there for me until I was, you know, the one to say, oh, no, I'm going to go do this now. So I wanted them to want to be there for me so that I knew I had their friendship until I was ready to move on and go do something else. Yeah. Like, same with the, the romantic relationships, but I didn't know that that's what I was doing. You were
1: using people. You weren't doing it because yeah. you wanted to do it, because just for the for their sake, yeah. it was because you wanted to give yourself protection, yeah,
0: basically. Yeah, definitely. And friends and mm. validation. So everyone was a player in your game, basically. Yeah. yeah. And as long as I didn't have to be alone and sit with myself, then I was winning that game, right? Mm. So I... Found myself in a bit of a hole there where I just, again, like I was just substituting one thing for another. Like it was drugs and alcohol. It was women. It was the job. But then I threw myself into the job here and I was working 24 hours a day. Like I was doing 112-hour weeks, right? Like wild. But I was justifying that with I'm doing something good because I'm looking after kids, right? Like the ego has a funny way to justify why you're doing things. So it got to the point where I then got out of debt And then I was making money, but then I would just, again, just fill that void with alcohol, friends, not to the extent that it was in the States and cut out drugs at that point. But then I started again, sitting with my own thoughts of, okay, if I'm not Kane, the sales manager, the son, the partner, the this, who am I? And I didn't really have an answer. So I went on a bit of a deep dive of who am I? I started journaling. Learned about breath work, meditation. Where did those influences come
1: from? How were you introduced to all that stuff?
0: So I was living in Alice Springs and Alice Springs is a very transient place and a lot of people come there for for a few years. They either work in like the fireys or the police or youth work and so people come there for a few years and then they leave. So it's a very multicultural place, a lot of Africans, a lot of Indians, a lot of uh, Maoris, so many people. And so I was finding myself in these groups of people that I hadn't found myself in before, and some of those groups being conscious groups. Mm. So I got introduced to one group through ice baths which i thought okay i'm training like whatever yeah. i'll go to an ice bath but then through through the ice bath i realized it was like a wim hof workshop yeah and right. then i got introduced to breath work and uh-huh. then i got introduced the to, gateway drug yeah yeah right <laughs> that's so, how they get you <laughs> oh honestly and this dude had like a freezer set up at the back of this house yeah. and who's an older guy um he would have been in his 40s couple of couple of little kids and naturally, like without realising it, I was seeking validation from this guy. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be the best breathwork person, yeah. or how can I get introduced to the inner circle, yeah. or I'm going to be at every ice bar. Classic Kane. Classic, <laughs> dude, right? But thankfully, it was a person that could push me in a positive direction, mm. and someone that had done some of their own work, someone that was on their own path that could help guide me down that path. And it's talking about going full circle. You know, some of those modalities that my family member I mentioned about, like that was in the spiritual space, would talk about like meditation. And it was like all of these things that I had learned when I was a kid that were kind of coming back around, but now actually landed. Because mm. I wasn't like meditation boring and a go drink. It yeah. was like, oh, okay, let's, well, you let's tried, explore this. You a tried bit. the other road. Correct. Yeah. 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 It took me over 10 years and a couple of trips around the world to realize what I was looking for wasn't over there. It was like right Inside here you. all along, right? Yeah. Like, fuck, man. <laughs> you kidding? <laughs> Shit. So, and it was like a light bulb moment. Yeah. And thankfully, at the time, I had some really beautiful friends in my life. Yeah, they like a drink and stuff like that, but just genuinely good people. Mm. Did that sense
1: of stealth start to materialize and you started to actually paint a picture of who you
0: thought you might yeah. actually be definitely and I, and it was like that little voice i talked about when i was a kid right of like you're you're more than this and then i've always felt like I want to be of service to others. And as much as the ego wants to jump on that and be like, oh yeah, I fucking love helping people, right? Mm. But it's like, no, it's deeper than that. It's like, I genuinely want to be of service to others, right? But if I can't even be of service to myself and respect myself and have my own healthy boundaries, how can I do that for for other people? Yeah, if if your cup's empty, you can't. Exactly, yeah, exactly right. And I was
1: actually struck by you in that regard when I met you, when you ran this men's retreat workshop. I was struck by your authenticity because i went to that not being skeptical but sort of interested to see like who would run something like this and i was immediately captivated by you but also struck by just the look in your eye i could tell that this guy he's been through something significant he's worked something out and he means it and
0: i was like i'm getting this guy on the podcast (laughs) yeah i appreciate you saying that it's uh I wouldn't have you know articulated it that well myself, so no, thank you I, I do appreciate that it's you know it's funny how we kind of got to there and you know how we ended up where we are now, where we're out on the journey in the story, wanting to be of service, but at the time wasn't being of service to myself. so then I started diving in learning about things like ayahuasca or you know these darkness retreats or the silent retreats, and I started looking for for ways that I could tap into, into myself a little bit more, which was something that I'd been completely ignoring. So at the time I was following Aubrey Marcus. Yeah, I, I know, knew it, I knew it yeah, 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 yeah. So, And I started learning about ayahuasca and listening to a few of those podcasts and plant medicine at that time wasn't something that was on my radar. I knew what drugs were,
1: right? Mm. Yeah, like,
0: you know, very much so. Yeah, exactly. And so you, things that you use without intention. And so when he talked about using plant medicine to connect more deeply with yourself, I immediately was interested by it. And I had reached out to a, to a retreat center and at the time they weren't offering retreats, but this I knew this was the one that I wanted to go to. So I said, okay, maybe that's a sign. I'll just sit on my hands. And if I'm still interested in six months and, and fuel the calling to that, then then I'll reach out. So. In that time, again, I was tr- still trying to make it work with my overseas girlfriend. Was she gonna come here? I ended up taking a trip back to the US to meet her just to see how things were going. And yeah, that was just confirmation that I wasn't gonna go any further. And found out that the retreat center was, was gonna be back up and running. So this was about seven or eight months after my dad had passed away that they said they were gonna be able to offer retreats again and yeah, I had set my intention and and kind of gone on on this retreat with with ayahuasca. Is this in the Amazon? Yeah, this is in the Amazon. So ayahuasca, for for anyone that doesn't know, is like a a combination of the ayahuasca vine and another leaf, often like a chacruna leaf, which contains DMT, uh, which Joe Rogan talks about, like the spirit molecule, right, down in Peru. I wanted to go, I decided to go by myself and just get down there and Hectic. see what happens. So we ended up... Not um, that easy,
1: because I've, I've heard you have to go pretty deep into the jungle for this. And it's not like, oh, you just pick some ayahuasca. No, and like, no. It's a shamanic ritual that you it have is. to be led through
0: by someone who knows what they're doing. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah back thousands of years and this and this tea this uh, ayahuasca brew has been used by the different tribes of the amazon the shipibo people for yeah thousands of years and they tell them you know when people ask how did you know like this specific combination of two plants Mm. you know you happen they go oh the plants told us i booked the trip at the the time it was like the dodgiest 1997 website you've ever seen i'm like (laughs) am i sending money to like this like random company and i'm like never gonna get down there anyway i get an email from this guy back and it's like oh like tell us your intention of like why you want to come down here and up until then all of my experiences with it would be like drugs alcohol none of it was set with intention so when he sent back like a questionnaire being like why do you want to do this work yeah and it was also always about getting out of your mind not going in Definitely. And as soon as I started typing, I probably sent them one of the longest replies back because it's like, what are you trying to heal from? And I just went to town. How long do you have? Right. (laughs) And I was like journaling. As I was writing, I'm like freeing up all this emotional baggage that Mm. was like built up in me and like it just flowed out. They're and, like, didn't ask for your life story. But yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Basically, <laughs> they're like, red two pages. Like, oh, okay. You're here for the right reason. So, ended up, um, so you have to fly into this place called Iquitos, which is in Peru. But the only way to get there is by a plane. You can't drive in. It's literally like surrounded by like water in this town. So, uh, flew in, ended up getting picked up from the airport and a taxi and a couple of boats later, we end up at this at this lodge, at this retreat center. And... They say not to come in with any expectations, but i watch watched like 100 hours of like YouTube videos of people's <laughs> different experiences. I'm like, fucking yeah, I know what I'm going into. I'm going to have full yeah. eye open visions. I'm going to have everything. I'm going to come back. I'm going to know the meaning to life. I'm going to yep. have this new shine like you watch, like mm. ego just trying to jump on everything. Yeah, right? and ironically trying to control the experience. <laughs> oh, mate, the, the, the ego, man. Yeah. So we got there, settled in, and I was so numb toward my dad going into this that I genuinely didn't think it was going to come up. I was like, I'm not, I'm here to optimize. (laughs) I'm here to do this. I'm here to figure out my purpose because Uh again, so much of my conditioning was like, what am I here? I'm supposed to be here to build something. Like I'm going to be the fucking CEO of this company or something. Right. All Uh that conditioning coming through from my dad. So I'm going to sit in this ayahuasca ceremony. I'm going to get told what I need to do. And then I'm just going to go do it. But it ripped you to shreds. (laughs) ayahuasca gives you what you need not what you want yeah so in the first ceremony we're sitting there and we're with a traditional uh shaman he's third generation ayahuasquero so his grandpa taught his dad who taught him and now he's teaching his son so he's like it's in his lineage and for anyone listening if they're considering doing anything like that i highly highly recommend going to a safe space you need to find a retreat center that is one that has a, a good reputation and you can fully surrender because there are a lot of fly-by-nighters and it is not a safe space to be. It's not a game. No, not at all. So, yeah, please do do the diligence. So with this one, obviously, went in, first ceremony, fuck yeah, meaning of my life, what am I here to do? I'm going to have, have like the wickedest job ever and it's going to be so clear and I'm going to see my future wife and it's going to be chill. <laughs> and they blow out the last candle it's 10 o'clock at night in the middle of the Amazon in this in this little hut and about half an hour into it, people start purging and I just feel this like energetic activation kind of come up my spine and reach my my pineal gland, my third eye. Because it makes you throw up. Yeah, it's a physical and metaphysical, I guess. So it's very internal, but it does a lot of your energy clearing through purging. So it's like clearing those those blockages. So boom, I'm into it and I'm standing on the farm, the ostrich farm, in the front yard, looking at my dad, and I'm like, fuck, like, I'm here. And I have a little bit of awareness after doing a bit of research for the few months, and I'm like, fuck yes, like the sense of relief washed over me, and I'm just like, I'm here, I'm on the farm, we're communicating higher self to higher self. You've left all the baggage of your childhood and your meat suit body in the past. I'm now speaking to your spirit, right? So you've got none of that conditioning. We can finally communicate. And he just looks at me and turns around and faces his back to me. Ouch. And I just feel this overwhelming sense of like deep shame. Mm. And that's the emotion he he was showing me of how he felt about his life. And... I was trying to reason with him. I'm like, "No, nah, dad, turn around. It's okay." Like I'm literally sitting here in the Amazon to talk to you. Like apparently, right? Like I'm here. Like let's talk. And he wouldn't turn around. He couldn't wouldn't couldn't didn't want to, whatever it was. And I thought, "Okay, I'm going to go do something else then." And so I was like, all right, well, maybe mum's in here. You know, maybe she needs some healing. So I literally, like, it, like, popped up, like, a search bar, like, Google. I'm like, where's mum? And immediately travelled to her, like, actually travelled or whatever it was. And I saw her, like, sitting on the couch and scanned her body. And I saw, like, all this black, jaggedy goo. And I was like, okay, that's weird. Control A, like, control all, like, highlighted all of it and just pressed delete. And I was like, cool, like, you're good now. And what's interesting is a couple months after that, we found out she had cancer. And so I was like... Was that me seeing it like in the metaphysical form? Mm. And so kind of coming back to that, I was like, all right, sweet. Well, I've done a bit of work on you now, mum. Like, I will go back and see if dad's, how, how he's doing, if he's really talk more talkative. <laughs> yeah. And so I went back to the farm and how we had the farm set up is like, as you come out the front door, we had a big front yard and you had three big sheds where he built his cars. And so as a kid when i was like watching tv he would often be working out in the shed doing his own thing and then come in about okay can you come and help me hold this torch or like help me hold this spanner or whatever and i'd be like oh i just want to watch tv okay like trudge out to like the shed and help him and then come back inside yeah and so this time when i like teleported back to the farm i was in his body watching through his eyes as a like a third party viewer right And he's sitting down like on one of the milk crates, sitting next to the car, his hot rod, and he just like looks up at the beams and he just goes like, I should just fucking kill myself right now. And he got up instead and came inside and said, Cain, can you like come and help me with the car? And in that moment, I switched bodies back into my like eight-year-old self and realised every time he's been coming in from the shed asking for help, wasn't for like the physical help yeah sometimes it was but that was his way of asking for emotional help he needed you. and as soon as i realized that my was like cool lesson learned Boop. and then next one and what ended up happening in this first ceremony was me doing a lot of these interactions with my dad as a kid realizing that it was actually his way of communicating with me and him asking for help was you know come and help we do this come and help we do that but when I was being the viewer through his body what I felt was just this overwhelming disconnect from people around him like Mm. I could like I was listening to his thoughts in that like I've got a wife inside I've got my kids inside but I I can't feel them I'm disconnected from them I don't feel myself and what ended up happening after I I came home from Peru I went and saw his sister who's who's the one that was a, a, a bit more spiritually minded as a kid and and i asked her i was like oh like random question but like was dad ever suicidal and she just burst into tears and she's like you have no idea like how many times we had to like stop him when when you were growing up and like we used to have guns on the farm and everything like he had to come drop them off because he didn't like trust himself and like all this stuff as a kid you're oblivious to right you just see like the arguments between your parents and And think of it from your perspective. Right. And then I think like, oh, fuck, it's my fault that he doesn't love me and Mm. like all that sort of stuff, you know. So it showed you his pain in the most visceral way. Yeah. And his passing when he died was when I started that healing journey between my relationship and him and this like ceremony and the consecutive ceremonies were a big part in me being able to move from anger to... You know, numbness to forgiveness. Do they end and with any kind of moment,
1: any sort of acknowledgement between you and him?
0: Um, not. Again, ayahuasca gives you what you need and not necessarily what you want, right? So I still, I still feel like I'm doing the work to heal his ancestral line and my relationship with him. Like the work continues. I feel like there was just so much done at that time. And. I'm starting to put all the pieces together because I came back from Peru and I'm working with these young people that are in care, you know, because they come from traumatic backgrounds and I'm learning and reading books on trauma so that I can show up better for these kids I'm working with. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, holy shit, like this is my dad. This is me. I'm realizing that like everyone has trauma, not just the kids I'm looking after because they're in care. Like you can have trauma and have a normal upbringing, right? So... As I'm learning all of this stuff, the pieces are falling into place. And as a 30 year old man, I'm putting the pieces together of when I was like an eight year old kid of why my dad was the way he was. Because as a kid, like his dad was was in the war. He came back with PTSD, had to sleep with the light on, was abusive towards him. And so I remember hearing a story of my dad that the first time he remembers his mum ever kissing him was when he was a grown man. So. He's grown up... And that was and, his mum. Yeah. He's never—he's grown up never having any of this affection. Like, no wonder he couldn't express that to me. Like, he n- never had that. And you can bet your grandpa's
1: dad was the same or right. worse. Yeah. And it's the same for my family. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's
1: the same pattern all the time. Yeah. So many guys i talk talked to on this podcast have a similar story to tell in terms of that, that yeah. lineage. And it actually gets a bit better every generation yep. a lot of the
0: time. Yeah. And then you could have compassion, though, finally, for your finally. dad. Finally. And I looked at him not as the guy that didn't give me love and the guy that made me feel bad, but as that kid that was treated that way by his parents. Like, I just wish I could fucking give that little kid a hug. And as
1: the man who was suffering and didn't have the answers. Definitely.
0: Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I remember saying to my auntie when I came back and I was like, I just wish he was still alive so that I could have these conversations with him now. And she's like, you're being silly. Like, just because you're in that place... He was seventy one when he passed away. If he wasn't there and ready to have those conversations, then he never would have been. Even if you thought you were ready to open that conversation, it would have been another correct. It would have been another opportunity for him to probably hurt me with words by saying, Why do you want to talk about that stuff? Yeah. Or like, that's stupid. But what you
1: learned was that was his shit. And that was just something you
0: were powerless over. Yeah. Hundred percent.
1: So were you able to let that go?
0: Yeah. And now you know sometimes it's not about what you learn it's about what you have to unlearn right mm. so in my mind i'm like oh like of course like he couldn't love me he couldn't love himself he didn't love himself and i believe that you can only love others or connect with others to the same depth that you connect and love yourself right so if he didn't love himself he i feel like even fucking hated himself to be honest how could he connect with other people like he was a big people pleaser he saw that you know all of his friends would say he was like the most awesome person on the planet do anything for you it was all people pleasing and it was always keeping score i've done this for you so now you owe me one mm-hmm. it's always the people closest to them that and get hurt, right at what point were you like oh, i'm my dad it kind of came back to when i was younger and i knew i was going to be the exact opposite to him but i didn't know what that meant until a few years ago What it meant to me now is that I knew I was going to be the person to interrupt that pattern and not pass the shit on. So a lot of that compassion now and understanding that he was a traumatized person, logically, I'm like, oh, sweet, that's why he couldn't connect with me. But emotionally, I've still got elements of that people-pleasing or elements of that not feeling good enough because you can't just undo that mm. emotional baggage just because my mind says, oh, no, this is the reason but why. But you can recognize it. You can recognize it and you can continue to work with it. And in everyday life, you continue to get opportunities to either practice it or fall back into those patterns, right? Yeah, but you actually so, see it. You yes, actually see what that yes, is. Yeah, exactly. And I'm so thankful that I have a more awareness than I did yesterday. Mm always an ongoing journey and you continue to fuck up getting back to the story where we were talking about the men's, the men's work. I had started to learn all of these coping strategies for me and had come back from Peru and I was doing breath work, meditation, ice baths, journaling, all of it. All of it. Let me feel that void. It, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. at that point it, it didn't become about feeling a void. It was about expanding of why I have a void. Like mm. why do I have that? need for fulfillment outside of myself so it was a lot of journaling a lot of work there ended up going back to peru about a year later uh, to work with the same shamans and another shaman with wachuma which is like the the cactus medicine and that's a, a grandfather medicine and it wasn't until i started working with the with the cactus and the grandfather medicine that my masculine opened up again and it was actually in that ceremony that i got shown that box that I made as a kid. Right. With all of the things all that those my traits dad had that you didn't want to embody. That I had taped up and fucking shackled and chained and shoved in the corner of my mental attic. And it said, Hey, remember this? <laughs> Amazing. These that are was all that was part of who you're meant to be. Yeah. You can't be a whole and complete person if you're just in the feminine, right? Mm. You need to have those elements of, you know, embodying the masculine and the feminine, because the masculine is the discipline, the masculine is the assertiveness, the masculine is working hard and being a man, standing your ground. When used in the right context and with the right intention, it's it's necessary. Well, not only
1: is there nothing you know, wrong you, with it, but it, yeah, it's completely necessary. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. You need to protect your family. You need to do this, and, and I it think doesn't mean why... you're going to be
1: a monster. No,
0: no, not at all. But having lived in my feminine for so long once i started moving into my masculine i was like oh it's okay to to feel to feel that and i think i swung more into the masculine you know it's like a pendulum like we were talking about before so i've been in the feminine very heavily for most of my life and i swung back to the masculine i found myself excited about dirt bikes so i'm like you know bought a dirt bike and i found myself being attracted to all these different women and like really because it was like it was
1: novelty yeah
0: whereas before that i was only attracted to women in their masculine Mm. so women that were so heavily focused on their careers phd girlfriend right or women that were so independent from their own coping strategies that i needed to battle to become what they wanted because that was also filling my validation but Mm. what i was actually drawn to them for was their independence which is a masculine trait right so me being in my feminine is gonna attract that woman in her masculine. So you felt like you couldn't be that yourself. Yeah, well that's polarity, mm. right? And you see it in same sex couples too. Oftentimes you have one, whether it be two men, you know, one more in their masculine, one more in their feminine, same with two women, one more in their masculine, one more in their feminine. The polarities match and meet and they are drawn to one another. So when I started swinging and moving into my masculine, not only was I more attracted to women in their feminine, they were more attracted to me. Mm. And it fucking blew my mind. Surprise, surprise. Right? It blew my mind. But I feel like, and like, if we're talking about relationships for a second, a man needs to be comfortable to be in their masculine and feminine because it actually allows and gives permission to women to be in their feminine.
1: And then there's vulnerability definitely. and intimacy. Yeah,
0: definitely. All, all elements of important relationships with yourself, with friends, with family, with romantic relationships. Mm. So... That was a big shift to, to start to realise that. And the last few years have, have been a little bit more than that and I was working very much on myself and I was fine doing that. But it wasn't until the end of last year, start of last year, my sister had it all, partner, house, the little baby, everything was hunky-dory. And then similar to what we've been talking about is that, you know, men, Having stuff that they need to deal with that manifests itself in the physical form because of the subconscious stuff. Self-destructive behavior that essentially put my sister in the position of being a single mom with a six-month-old. Nothing towards him as a person. Again, the result of an upbringing, right? And I looked at the situation through that lens of compassion, having worked with these kids, knowing... I know why he's doing this. So I was really conflicted as a brother because I understand what he's going through subconsciously at that level. You can't hate him. But as someone that, you know, put my sister in this position, it was a really fucking interesting position to be in. So... I ended up moving back from from the NT. Uh, We ended up getting a place together, my sister and I, and I said, like, I'll be here for you as long as you need until I help raise your little one. So having worked in youth work, having done a little bit of work on my own emotional capacity, like, I felt like in a really good place to be a support. And so I moved back. And then my ex-partner that we were talking about, she ended up, uh, dating someone they got married pretty quickly um, and then she found herself with a little baby and I was fucking so pumped for her man like you know everything that we talked about us wanting
1: Is this the a woman who's this doing is a
0: PhD yeah this is the one that I was gonna to move to, to Denmark for yeah. so my my ex from from the US uh, met someone got married had a little baby and he was also like in the academic space he was a professor of psychology and found out a couple of months after I moved back and my sister was on her own, uh, found out that my ex's new husband had committed suicide in their en suite after putting their four-month-old to bed. I know
1: that rattled you because you thought, well, if you're a professor of psychology and you can do that, then
0: what hope is there? Right. So that hit me pretty hard, actually, because this is a woman that I cared deeply about you know as much as when we broke up it was very numb but someone that I had built a life with in my head I'd spent a couple of years with I fucking felt for her you know this person that she thought she was going to spend the rest of her life with and just had a baby with that was a professor of psychology that should have this stuff figured out you know took himself out Like, what chance do the rest of us have if if they can't even figure it out? Or she couldn't even see the signs either. So
1: that rattled me. How did this all play into you figuring out how you
0: were going to serve and and what you were going to do about it? Yeah, sorry. Um, So with that being said, it was my sister situation, my own relationship with my dad and my own healing, and then my ex-partner situation and i just thought enough's enough like we need to do something i need to do something like there needs to be more space for men because men it's not men's fault Men are hurting themselves and they're hurting everyone around them and they're leaving that wake of destruction. Everyone needs a space. Like, I feel like women have all of these spaces where they can talk to their friends, they're good at communicating, you know, they can unpack everything even if it just seems like gossip. They're constantly talking about it, they're getting it out. Whereas men, what do we get told to do? Keep it in there. Yep. Don't show emotion, bottle it up. What happens is that manifests and people commit suicide or they drink drive and hurt someone. Or they fuck around, self sabotage, and continue to hurt people. And that, again, leaves a child without a father, you know? And so now these children, the next generation, are gonna to have to deal with that absent father or, you know, the, the lack effect. of role model. Correct. You know, so you've either got that positive ripple effect where you do good work or the negative. And unfortunately, from what I've seen, we see a lot more negative. So that was kind of the last straw for me. I never even considered getting into men's work. I knew that I had done some healing for myself and I just thought I can't stand by any longer and just be selfish and work on myself so that's how man on purpose was born and I had met Stefan along the path of, of doing some breath work and meditations and he had a physio background and you know a holistic approach to that and I just said we need to we need to do something so we opened up a space not as gurus of wanting to come in and be like, well, like we (laughs) literally like, I want the space, like I want to sit down and people not know who's running the circle and just men to be able to come and connect and be vulnerable and just share. Because if we can create a space where people can talk about what I went through as a kid with my dad or how you felt when your dad did this, or maybe you're dealing with drugs or alcohol or a relationship breakdown and you don't see your kids. Like if we can prevent a suicide an abuse or anything and it can ripple out in a positive way that's going to continue to ripple out so yeah you never know but it has such a massive impact yeah
1: and you are creating those spaces like that workshop that i came to a lot of those guys had never met before i didn't know anyone who was there didn't have particularly big expectations but i thought it was Massively powerful. And there were some typical blokey bloke guys there who'd clearly never talked about their feelings before in their life, who were very sort of standoffish at the start, and then yeah. totally released that, got to the point where they were talking about having to um, be the ones to identify a, a friend who died by suicide or or their relationships with their fathers and letting this stuff out, and you could see how much it meant to them and how much it affected them. And also the realization in the moment, that you were carrying this stuff because you, you, yeah. you don't even know. And all you've done in that space is convince everyone that they are safe and that they are allowed to feel and they're not going to be judged and everyone else has made the same decision to be here. And there wasn't anything mystical about it, but it was magic. yeah It was, man. And yeah. it's just like a very strong feeling of this is a good thing that we've got here. And yeah. I was struck by it that day, but also through the podcast and a lot of the conversations that I have with men is that we're itching to talk. Definitely. We want it, like we want to. And as soon as we get that opportunity, it means a lot. People sort of grab it with both hands and then afterwards, especially if they haven't done much of it, it's like, oh, yeah. I don't know what that was, but that was full on. It felt good. And I wanted to do it again. Yes. And obviously typically it's like, well, we have to wait till we're fucked up on drugs or we're, or we're drunk to do it. But exactly. really what we want is that under, under the surface, we want to unleash. We want to let you know what happened, how we feel. And then we want to hear that you had something similar or something of, of your own. And we want to be able to hug each other or, or pat each other on the back and say, like, yeah. yeah, man, I feel you.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And the workshop that you attended is the perfect scenario. People that had never been there before, that from the outside, Everyone looks very different. Like they had a very different walk of life coming in there, right? And from the outside, it's very easy to make a big, long list of why we're different. And with the group that we had there, it was a long list, right? But as soon as you scratch away that surface layer, you realize, like, fuck, man, we actually have a lot in common. You realize how similar we are, right? And it's not necessarily even about having people solve your problems, it's just about being able to express without judgment. And sometimes to just get it out is enough. You know, having other people just listen or put a hand on your shoulder and said, fuck man, I've been there. You know, and like you said, it's not until oftentimes it's drugs, alcohol that become the catalyst for where people try and dip their toe in vulnerability. But then what happens with their friend who's been conditioned not to show emotion from his upbringing goes, what the fuck are you talking about that for? Mm. Right? And then it just reconfirms, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be talking about this stuff. But then... Worst case scenario, they go and commit suicide. And there was a few boys at the at the at the event that you attended that had experienced that, unfortunately. Mm. And it's it's too common. But you can get there through breath work and through
1: ice baths and Definitely. and through setting the scene for that kind of a conversation. Definitely. And there's nothing destructive about it, and it's not particularly difficult to get to that point. You just have to have some some trust and some willingness to try something new. But what you get out of it is exactly what I think everyone's looking for, whether you're a boy or a girl or whatever you identify as, is the essence of being human. Definitely. And it's actually quite simple, but we make
0: it so hard. Yeah, it's so true. Like, we, I think at the end of the night, like, obviously, we did some breath works and some guided meditation. And then at the end, we sat around the fire and ate. And it was like, one of the most special parts of the evening like just sitting around and communicating and talking and, and i bet that's often the case yeah and i mean what have humans always done yeah
1: that yeah, and around this, the flight, and that's right. what. and that's what's missing yes so ways of recreating that and those initiations in our modern world i think is
0: absolutely essential especially for men i think so and that's one thing that lacks especially here in like the australian or western culture is that you know, lack of initiation through manhood, right? Like women get the the point of reaching womanhood and they get their period. There's something that signifies when they become a woman, right? But when do men have Not that, that that's a great gift, no, no, you <laughs> know gift you, for them, no, I'm no, sure. No, yeah, you know, yeah, I know you what, know you're what you're I'm saying. What I know you're saying. As a man, is it the point where you have sex for the first time? Oh, fucking hell, I'm a man. Like, right? mm. like, what is it? And we don't have that. And then not only that, it's the lack of elders as well. Lack of good role models for young men. Because the men that we would look up to probably lack the same thing. And you see how it just flows on Mm. until people like yourself stand up and go, no, I'm I'm going to be the one that does the work. And idolize those behaviors that actually
1: aren't the answer. And it's all just noise and bullshit, but we have to go do that to figure that out ourselves and then try to find another way. But if we're raising whole generations on this, fake notion of oh yeah this is what you want you want the car and the house and the money and the babes and the muscles and then you'll just be you'll be living the
0: life and it's just a lie it's not true yeah and oftentimes people like my dad for example will be in the pursuit of something all of their life money relationships whatever but if you at least if you achieve it you realize oh fuck this isn't it But if you continue like your whole life chasing it, you're never going to feel... Then you think, well, I'm not content because I
1: never got there. But even if you get there, if you haven't gone about it the right way and you haven't brought people with you and you haven't done it in order to serve a a higher power, then it's going to be empty anyway.
0: Exactly. Mm. Exactly right. And for me, where I'm at now is we're all still learning. You know, we're all still… No, not me. I've got all the answers. (laughs) Do you? you Give give me something. Yeah, Yeah, give me something. (laughs) We're all all still learning. We all still get given those opportunities in in the day to practice what we've learned, right? But Uh, you want them to
1: be opportunities and not just be bestowed with traits or… bestowed with who you think you want to be it needs to be opportunities that you make conscious decisions to Mm. go the right way every single day or day after day or if you make the wrong decision to put yourself back on course because you have to earn that you have to earn becoming who you want to be so that you can be content with yourself and if if it was just given to you it wouldn't mean anything
0: correct and then you would just piss it away anyway definitely and if you were given hypothetically your ideal goal was the house the job the car, the partner. If you were just given all of that, you missed out on one very important thing, and that's the person that you become to be. The journey, which is what it's all about, and the why. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then you wouldn't value it, and Correct. you'd probably lose it. Well, that's why all the like lottery winners, right? Go like, broke, Ninety-nine yeah. percent of them go broke. Why? Because they're still that broke person with the same conditioning. They just blow it all. And it doesn't
1: mean you can't have nice things. No, not at all. For sure. Not at but all. I always think like, and this is great because this is coming from a guy still driving the same o3 Lancer that I've had since I was sixteen years old, right? right? So I want a new car. Yeah, cool. But I do think. I'll still be the same guy driving that car though. Yeah. Whatever the next car is. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have nice things or aspire to that. But if that's the goal, odds on it's going to be mm.
0: pretty empty when you get there. So are you the man that you want to be now? I think I'm on the way. I don't think I'll ever be there. I think I'm embodying it a lot more than I think what I was. I think you'll be there, man. Yeah, a lot of learning and there's stuff that I'm still not aware of, right? Like things will pop up and I go, oh, there's a conditioning that I didn't realize I had. You know, and I've been single now for about three years since that relationship because I knew my patterns, like we said, it was relationship, relationship, relationship. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to do me. So now I'm like, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like good in my own skin, but getting into a romantic relationship, that's going to be a whole nother kettle of fish, right? Where I'm going to get shown things that I haven't been triggered by being on my own know jealousy or like trust like all of those sorts of things so there's going to be continued growth opportunities but I definitely think I'm I'm on my purpose and being of service to others you must first be fit for service and I think I've done the work to become fit for service and now I'm just excited to to be able to provide a safe space for men to be able to connect and grow and and heal and push boundaries. And where can our audience find out about Man On Purpose? Yeah, so we're on Instagram, man.onpurpose or our website, manonpurpose.com.au. And uh, yeah, we hold monthly men's retreats and then some pop-up co-ed workshops as well for some breathwork and meditation, so. Thanks, brother. Thank you, man
1: that's it for this episode if you're getting some value out of the show please help us out with a quick rate and review on apple podcasts everything we do is recorded in video so follow young blood men's mental health on instagram and facebook and young blood mental health on tiktok subscribe to our youtube channel and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate we'd love to hear from you you can sign up to our e-news through our website youngbloodmedia.com.au And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.